Ale, and welcome to this uh, Arts and Society Forum. Um, and it's part of the Ask the Artist uh, uh, series. Um, and just before I introduce our esteemed guest, uh, a couple of things. Um, the In Conversation format, as I'm sure you know, I'll ask Jack some questions. We'll talk about his career, his inspiration, uh, his thoughts and ideas on the world, and many other things, I hope. Um, that'll last about 20, 20 25, 30 minutes. Um, but obviously we want you to, uh, to uh, have your input because that's a really important part of, uh, of these discussions and debates. Uh, so I want to open the discussion up as, as, as kind of quickly as possible. Um, but obviously I know that Jack has a lot to say for himself, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, really like to thank Wendy, Wendy Earl, who, uh, who devises and organises and produces all of these discussions, these fantastic and unique uh, discussions, they take a lot of work, as I'm sure you know, and I'm flattered to be, to be part of them. Um, and I might add that Wendy was organising both Jack and I on this discussion when she was uh, trekking along the Ganges and uh, <laughs> trekking around India last month. Such is Wendy's dedication. And of course, these uh, arts and societies discussions are organised in conjunction with the Academy of Ideas, uh, and the annual Battle of Ideas Festival, which is held every October, um, where there's lots of art and society uh, debates and strands uh, looking at culture, um, visual arts, poetry, and music, which is kind of where I got involved. I've done a few debates and discussions around music and songwriting and choirs and things, which kind of brings us to uh, the debate tonight, the, sorry, the discussion tonight. I'm so used to having debates. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we're going to have any debates, are we? Not Maybe we are. Um, okay, so uh, our, uh, our, our, our guest is the singer uh, songwriter Jack Hughes, uh, who's a very prolific and successful musician with a real varied career and lots of interests, which I hope we'll get into. Um, but he's known to many of us as the front man uh, of his band, or one of his bands rather, Wang Chung. Uh, who enjoyed some great success in the UK with singles like Dance All Days uh, and Everybody Had Fun Tonight. But much bigger success and much more prolonged success in the US, pretty much through the, the whole of the 80s. Uh, and when I, we first started speaking to Jack and uh, I mentioned the title to him, with the Recollections of a Rock Star, I think I remember you kind of chuckled and, and thought it was a little bit ironic, but uh, really for most of us, you know, for, for what your career has been uh, and the success you've had, you kind of epitomise a rock star for most of us and, and, you know, something that most of us could have only dreamt of. We had the records and we saw the bands and we put the pictures on the wall, but, uh, but you actually, you know, you actually managed to do it. So can we kick off with your kind of early years, whether that was was that your plan? Was that what you intended to do? Uh, what inspired you? How did, it, how did it kick off, really, I guess? I guess it all started with the Beatles, as practically everybody my age would, would agree. You know? So uh, I vividly remember, and I've remembered it so many times, it's become something else, probably. Uh, but I vividly remember hearing Please Please Me for the first time in the kitchen with my mum. So I was about or seven, seven years old, eight years old, maybe something like that, seven years old, I think. And I remember she was doing the washing up and this record came on the radio and I remember her getting irritated with it because of the chorus line of, come on, come on, come on. And I remember going like, oh, come on then. 
you know, <laughs> doing the dishes, you know. And I thought this is really interesting because it's like she clearly doesn't like this, and, I, and there was something about it that I loved, you know. And so that sense of separation, <laughs> necessary sense of separation, uh, definitely started there. And uh, and it was very much it was the Beatles sort of represented my world, or actually not my world. It represented a world that I didn't live in, but I really wanted to live in. And uh, my dad was a, a saxophone player uh, in local bands. He was into jazz, but not like heavy Coltrane type jazz. It was more, um, how would you describe it? His favorite saxophone player was like Stan Getz and he loved Paul Desmond. So I'm a sort of gentler kind of jazz and he was also into big band jazz. And I remember before the Beatles, I, I can remember playing some of his records. We had an old gramophone and I was definitely into the whole thing of what records were and the sounds they made you know, from a very young age. So music was always my thing, I think, and I responded to it in a kind of emotional sort of way. You know. uh, but definitely the Beatles were the, the kick-off point and uh, I, I think I saw them on the London Palladium show. I, I asked my dad for a guitar and God bless him, <laughs> he, he said yes <laughs> and bought me a guitar as opposed to saying well, you should learn piano or a sensible instrument you know, where you actually learn music properly. But the deal was I had to have proper guitar lessons and I went to this lady who taught me to read music as well as play guitar. And that's where my sort of double life began in a sense of uh, studying music, um, academic's the wrong word, but studying how to read music, the sort of nuts and bolts of it, I suppose, as well as having this dream of uh, being the greatest rock musician who ever lived. Because <laughs> um, you, you've mentioned elsewhere that you were from a fairly working class background, mm. and um, I yeah. just wondered what. It, interesting what you say, because I was when you said that, it made me think of a story I'd heard. Uh, there's a documentary with Jeff Lynne from ELO, okay. and he was talking about. I think he must have grown. Maybe he's a little bit older, but little, kind of early sixties. Yeah. 60s. yeah. Um, and his mother constantly trying to get him to go work in a factory, mm -hmm. you know. So he, he was talking about how difficult it was for a working class kid to yeah. to get into music. And he was, she would she would try and call him downstairs every every morning at about five thirty, go to work kind of thing. And in the end, he said, "I got fed up." He said, "Mom, I'm a successful rock musician <laughs> kind of thing," and she would just never have it so yeah. do you think you were, were were lucky having a you know quite open parents or yeah. i mean i even remember when i was at school to to take music which i was the only person in my year i was so yeah. everyone said we are kind of thing <laughs> you know it, it was it was you know it was quite a tough thing to do in a way yeah. Yeah. i mean i think with my parents when i became a, a rock star when i, I had success yeah. with wang chung and i was working in america a lot and um, and i would sort of visit them and try and talk about it. They completely blanked that conversation. And I, I mentioned it to my daughter, Violet, actually. And, you know, it, I used to leave my sort of visits to my parents feeling sort of exhausted, basically, and I never really knew why. But I think it was because I just wasn't heard. And, and Violet said to me, I was amazed how they always just changed the subject when they were talking about you know, America or, and stuff, you know. But when I, in the sort of 2003 or four, I think I started doing some teaching at the university in Canterbury where I, I moved to, you know. Mm. And when I started doing that, they were kind of like, oh, at last, he's got a job. <laughs> Is <laughs> that what he was? Yeah, they, they, and they would ask me about that. They couldn't know? relate to it? But or the rest they... of it was kind of like, well, when are you going to sort of settle down and 
do something. Even though your father was a musician, yeah, and he yeah. wasn't jealousy or anything like that, was he? Well, I wonder sometimes whether he was, you know, he was of an age where you couldn't be a pro musician yeah. without, unless you had money, you know, and he had to have a day job, so he was yeah. not necessarily a semi-pro musician. I don't think there was any right, real deep jealousy sort yeah. of thing, you know, but between him and my mum, they concocted this weird space where what I was doing was something that I'd stop doing soon and then I'd do teaching, which they thought is what I'd always be, I guess. Yeah. So the Beatles thing, just yeah. thinking about inspiration for, yeah. for you, was that was that the context? Was it just like Britain was a fairly, I mean, it was often painted as a bit of a dark and dreary place mm. and then this thing just, mm. you know, burst through. It's some, sometimes the way earlier people slightly older talk about Elvis, for yep. instance. Yeah. Um, I just wonder whether whether I, you think you were part of a very special moment uh, yes. in, 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 in music and, you know, British culture or something. I think it felt that the Beatles were Technicolor, you know, when you heard their music, yeah. you know, it was, and everything else was a pretty dreary grey. So I grew up in the Medway towns in Gillingham, which is a, close enough to London to not have any cultural stuff going on itself, but far enough away to be a complete backwater. It's like sort of New Jersey. <laughs> so when did you start to take things seriously then? You, you, you had a teacher and yeah. then you uh, started to learn music. Yeah. So you, you, you actually went to some fairly prestigious music schools mm. and, and you started then to, you, uh, to, to, to kind of be opened up to some very different yeah. music. Um, so I knew nothing about classical music when I applied to university. It's like my parents wanted me to go to, go to university because they hadn't been and, you know, I, I had that sort of education, you know, A-levels and stuff where I could go. So I thought, well, if I'm going to go, I want to study music. But of course, in those days, you could only study classical music. And I remember doing interviews at Southampton and Exeter especially uh, and sort of being laughed at, really, um, because I knew nothing about classical music. They were like, well, why are you... What do you think you're going to do? You know, because it's all these kids you're going to be with. They they've studied, you know, they've been learning violin and stuff since they were five, and you know, you won't be able to keep up at all. And I kind of thought, you know, what's there to keep up with, really? Do you mean it's just music is music, <laughs> you know? Um, but eventually, I got a place at Goldsmiths uh, because the head of the department there was a, a composer, and he'd written a piece which used electric guitar in it, and there weren't any electric guitarists going to. To music college in those days, really, well, very few, and uh, and he showed me this piece and said, "Can you play that?" And I was like, "Yeah, you know, I, I, I could sight read and stuff." You know, so I got the place on the strength of that, I think. You know, um, but I did get that I was with a very different crowd of people. And when I got, I was at Goldsmiths for three years and did a sort of undergraduate degree, and and then I, I did composition as part of my degree. I was going to say, were you writing? What, yeah. what kind of things were you writing? Well, I started right. I got really into the composer Alban Berg. So I started writing this kind of Schoenbergian, uh, atonal stuff. I was Quite just, early on then. Yeah, yeah. When, I, when I was, yes, yeah, sort of 18, 19. And I remember I entered this, I was entered into, my composition tutor said, there's this competition that the BBC are running for young composers. Why don't you try and write something? So I wrote these songs for piano and voice, set in poems by William Blake, using a very kind of 12-tone bag type idiom. And uh, it won the competition. Wow. Like in a very sort of like, oh no, you know, <laughs> what do we do now? Sort of thing. So the the prize was that I think the three three of us who were selected to have the pieces performed and it was recorded and broadcast on Radio Three, and uh, I, I have a tape of it somewhere. Which is, uh, and um, 
yeah, that was a moment up at Hull University. But I, what I really got was that I was faking it. I knew that I'd sort of kind of lifted a lot of it from the end of Wozzeck, which is an opera by Berg that I still love. And, uh, and I just sort of thought, well, it, it wasn't so much that. that. That was okay. But when I, having won that competition, my composition teacher arranged for me to have a year at the Royal College of Music just studying composition and I sit here and I, I can't deal with being on a course where I've got to do exams at the end of it and stuff. It's a, you're fine, just get a, try and get a grant from your local authority, which I managed to do in those days. You get grants for, I remember doing the interview for that. Mm. And um, so I, I sort of spent this year at the Royal College with him. But that was the first time I met middle class people. Mm. And, that was, and that's when I started to realise that I didn't have a hope in hell, <laughs> really, of being a composer, because I didn't have the networks. And they didn't, I didn't understand them, and they didn't understand me. I've, I've rationalised it since. At the time, I just found it confusing, and I felt a bit defeated all the time. You know? But looking back on it now, I, I get that I didn't have the confidence, in a sense, mm. to be able to present myself in a way that made any sense to them. Yeah. And so from there, I sort of drifted back. <laughs> You know, back to pop music. So you drifted back to, I was going to say, what, what were, you, were you doing anything aside? Were you playing well, any I, pop? Were you in any bands? Were you collaborating not time, with, no. you weren't going down to the local jazz club? And no, no like I wasn't that, particularly or, into jazz at all at that time because I inherited the Beatles yeah. thing. I think John Lennon said at some point, jazz music is shit music. It's everything that the Beatles <laughs> are against. I remember reading that in Melody Maker and I thought, yeah. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, no, I didn't really get jazz, and probably some Freudian thing was at work as well, stopping me from going there, you know. Um, but yeah, when I, when I came out of the Royal College, it was 1977, and Sex Pistols and The Clash were the things happening in London. And I suppose the artist that I kept in touch, you know, in touch with in terms of buying records was David Bowie. Yeah. So I got, you know, Heroes and Low and Station to Station and those sort of interim, well, not interim, I think the peak of his work, really, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I remember buying one of his live albums when I was at the Royal College and you know, thinking it was really as happening and as important really as anything that I was listening to by Stock Carlton and Hulez and all these guys who I loved as well but there was a difference obviously you know. but then with uh, 77 and the Sex Pistols and the Clash and, you know London was a really alive with bands and uh, so I just sort of thought I'd I, I answered a few ads in the Melody Maker for like yeah. musicians wanted. Yeah. So is uh, that how it started? Then? It is, so and that's how I met that them. a little bit. When, well, where you went in the next yes. couple of years and how you started. To yeah. Well, I suppose uh, in real life, um, my partner got pregnant <laughs> with right. <had> a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not a great thing, really, for an aspiring rock musician in terms of how you manage that situation. You know. Um, but what I, well, the positive thing was that we moved to London. Um, uh, and London was obviously the place to be rather than having moved back to Gillingham, which I sort of did after the Royal College in this rather confused state. You know. And uh, yeah, I applied for a few jobs. I think I, I applied for, a, I did an audition at the Roundhouse Studios in Chalk Farm, which I think was for the band that became Boney M. So that was a dodge the bullet there. You know. <laughs> I didn't get that one. <laughs> yeah, temporarily. Yeah, who knows where that would have led. And um, yeah, but then I uh, met Nick. He he put an ad in the Melody Maker, which looked like he had a record deal and stuff. And when I went to the audition, he'd set it up so that a friend of his was greeting musicians. Nick's very good. He's very entrepreneurial. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and that was when was that seventy seventy eight. Okay, that was yeah late seventy eight. I think yeah. And so I started 
rehearsing with him and working with this band called The Intellectuals. Right. Is there any significance, significance to, the, to the name? He thought he was just taking the piss. I think, right, and I, okay. And I thought, oh, that's a really good name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, we, so we went through that whole, it's like circles of hell, basically, where you sort of write some songs, do some demos, do some gigs, send the demos to record companies who think, oh, that's quite interesting. They come and see, or they came and see us and were like, <laughs> you know. What did you did you fit into anything? Were you trying to fit into any particular genre? Was it? I guess we were sort of like posed, just confused. Punk. It was pretty, yeah, it was pretty confused in a way. Yeah, it lacked focus. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, but a moment where you could theoretically be anything, presumably. Yeah, it was the punk thing had bro- broken things wide yeah. open. You know, so there was, I guess, the Police were yeah. like a sort of important band yeah. at the time. They were the sort of musician band at the time, you know. And then there were people like the Human League, doing, I think proper electronic yeah. stuff brilliant so stuff electronic music was your specialism was it at, at, at well but you not didn't really I'd okay. had studied it but I'd studied it in that Stockhausen kind of way yeah, okay. where it was about abstract sound you know rather than playing tunes with synthesizers I thought that was a really silly idea you know but I got that the Human League did it brilliantly you know uh, so so yeah and then there were like the sort of Duran Duran Adamant type yeah. bands the, the new romantics they were called all the time so there was space in between that to be. A lot of those bands were quite influenced by American funk bands, yeah. I think, you know, yeah. uh, and that was a bit of a thing. And certainly one of the things I loved about Nick was that he was really into Chaka Khan, and um, we were both huge fans of Little Feet. Uh, we loved the Tubes. We loved Television. Those sort of American art rock yeah. bands and, and stuff, you know. And I, I think American bands were not terribly liked in England at that time. It was England, as always was quite insular with its music taste yeah. and um, yeah so well the DIY like, sorry the punk thing people always talk about mm. the DIY nature of you know oh, we couldn't really play you yeah. know, apart from three chords yeah. and things like that was, so I was going to ask you a little bit later about uh, maybe we'll get into the to the, the America yeah. versus uh, UK thing which yeah. is something that interests you but yeah. so from there you were messing around writing songs mm. did you did you did you kind of take to the songwriting thing? Did you go gigging straight away? Did yeah, you I mean, I started writing songs when I was 12. Yeah. You know, and I had, a friend, yeah, yeah. I had a friend who was wrote lyrics and I'd write songs. And I was in bands from when I was 12, really, mm. you know. And it was always doing my own stuff as well. I mean, we did covers necessarily because that's <coughs> how you get an audience, you know. But, um, but yeah, songwriting was something I just did. You know, I, really think about it very much just was always writing songs and always I guess influenced slash copying the thing that I'd last heard that sort of inspired me you know whether that be the cream or all along the watchtower or or whatever it might be um so well so were you banging away trying to find that one hit or did it come I think it was just one hit one hit that really kind of changed yeah. everything for you? Or? The Dance All Days yeah. was the song that changed everything. But I really didn't... Uh, you know, Dance All Days I, I wrote in a room a bit like this in, in Catford when I was teaching. I, when I left college, uh, the Royal College, I got a few jobs. I was teaching guitar at Goldsmiths and one evening a week I had this rock guitar class, which I think is quite legendary among the people who were there. And, uh, and I think it... it I found it, you know, it's like a sort of circus, really, of all these different kind of abilities. It was really noisy, and, and people would be playing and stuff. It was, but uh, I just got that I should sort of be there, be encouraging for people, and also perform, 
because they wanted to see somebody who could do it, if you know what I mean, to sort of they could copy. It's like, oh, how do you play that? And how do you, you know, so showing them in that way, you know, as opposed to talking theoretically about it or anything like that, you know. So, so I did that, and I taught in a, two or three schools in southeast London, just teaching guitar in a peripatetic sort of way, you know, just. Uh, and um, one of those classes, the kid didn't show up for his or her lesson, and, and I remember sort of coming up with the take your baby by the hand idea in the, in the shuffle rhythm, that, which I've always thought was close to Little Feet and uh, like an American kind of bluesy sort of feel. You know. And I just wrote that song, much as I'd written all the songs before, you know, as the next song I was writing. You know, but I think back, I think there is a, a sort of slightly below consciousness this bit of myself that's shrewd <laughs> and that sort of sees. I, I think, you know, we'd had this deal with Arista and done an album with them, which was the, called Huang Chung, you know, when the band was spelled H-U-A-N-G. And, uh, and I'd uh, written these songs, you know, like a song like Rising in the East is a seven and a half minute song that's got more in common with Yes than it has. So I was sort of doing what I was doing in this rather kind of obstinate sort of way but adapting the kind of sound of it, the, the surface to prevailing stuff, not in a conscious way, but that's just how it mm. sounded. And also the technology would always sort of create the sound of the record in a sense. You know? yeah. So Dance of a Day sounds like it does because of fair lights and lexicon reverbs and 48 track analog recording and stuff. You know, it's like, it creates a certain kind of sound. You know? It's interesting you say that, because if you listen back to a lot of uh, early 80s music and the fair, the Fairlight, the so synthesizer mm. technology it's at, an early at the sampler, time. Basically. Um, yeah. It really dates the music, but yeah. listening to that, that track, I, I didn't even associate it with, yeah. with, with that. Yeah. Um, well, I think one of the things about the track time. is it's in this, it's in three, and machines can't really play that. We spent hours and hours and hours trying to get this Lindrum to trick it into playing three and recording it and chopping the tape up and stuff and eventually managed <coughs> to do it you know but I think a lot of 80s music just has that sort of one two very military everything's in you know di divided in by you know into 16 sort of thing you know? yeah you know, that makes any sense <laughs> okay yeah. so uh, so you kind of hit hit the hit the spot with dance hall days and that really started opening yeah. doors for you did, did that yeah I suddenly you know we were asked out to dinner by our publishers which had never happened before yeah. and and also we met this guy this guy there's a friend of Nick's called David David Massey and David his mum had managed Lulu uh, but he had not gone into the music business she sort of pushed him away from that and he'd studied law at Cambridge and was working in Paris I think for Burberry or something like that so he was in this sort of sort of slightly strange world but he hated all of that and he heard uh, the Wang Chung, the Huang Chung album that Nick had done and some demos that we were doing for the next record you know and just sort of fell in love with it all and was kind of like this is what I want to do I want to manage this band I'm gonna make them you know and and that's what you need in the in the music in the rock business I think in any arts business actually you need someone who passionately believes in what you're doing and can talk to people with money and understand their world you know because as an artist, you know, I still have a terrible problem saying to someone, I've written this song, it's really good. You know, it's like, I've written this song, what do you think? Mm -hmm. you know, um, do you like it? Yeah. Is it any good? I don't know whether it's any good. You know, especially for Americans, that's like, you know, that's, you're mad. You know, you've got to believe in, in yourself. You know. yeah. I, I've never been able to do that, but, uh, but David could. You know. And David sort of had the vision to take us away from Arista, which was a London-based company. 
uh, and to America, where he sort of realised that they would not have a problem with the musicianship in the band, which English record companies did, and especially the English press did. Yeah. They don't like that sort of professionalised, or didn't then anyway, like that kind of professionalised way of creating music. And um, Well, was it inauthentic? Or yeah, they were, I think yeah, they, to do with it. I yeah. think it means you, I don't know what it is, you yeah. know, you're, you're not you're not from the right side of the track sort of thing. Although ironically, I was a lot less yeah. middle class than most of the people who were writing yeah. music criticism then. You know, so it's it's one of those things. You know how things look and how they actually are. You know? I read that you were advised to change the name from Huang Chung to Wang Chung by yeah. David Geffen, yes. who he was probably one of the most important figures in American popular music for yeah. fifty years, really over yeah. the last fifty years, wasn't it? Which is I was really impressed when I read that. Yeah. Um, so you, you obviously, you know, you know, struck a nerve in in, in, in the stage. You really, yeah. you know, kind of really. That was interesting. Uh, to yeah, we meeting him and uh, yeah, but I met some you know very kind of powerful people yeah. in that in the entertainment industry. Yeah. Him, Bill Friedkin. I not that I got to know David Geffen at all, but I did get to know Bill. He became a real friend, you know. And um, yeah, just the way they think, the way they operate, the level that they're operating on is completely different from anything. That I, I so does that give you a real well. boost then, getting um, the, the American record companies and, and the industry really believing in you? That, yeah. that, that that did you feel more at home over there? I did. Yeah. Did you relocate? No, no. I did live in LA for an, a year towards the end of the Wang yeah. Chung time, um, but in that initial phase, because I had kids in the UK, okay, I didn't. Well, I, I could take them to America, and yeah. uh, I didn't want them to grow up in America. Yeah. Okay, so you got a passion for America, and I mean, well, you're I just telling me that we were, that you you <laughs> took time touring, going out, go, taking time out, going around to art galleries <laughs> in obscure yeah. obscure towns. And yeah. I, I imagine that you were very, you were very at home there. Yeah. But, yeah um, you say at home, you know. Well, I love working there. Yeah. You know, and I I love the way. It, that it's geared up for music. They take music seriously, you know, and it's and meeting American A and R guys. You know, they'll sit and talk to you about their business. You know, which is like knowing charts, knowing chart hits. You know, what's a great and you have these insane conversations. So John Kolodner was my A and R guy at Geffen, who's a legendary A and R person. A and R means artist and repertoire. Their job is to scout new talent and then develop it within the label. You know, and John Kolodner. Um, well, he, he used to dress like John Lennon on the cover of Abbey Road. So he, had, he always wore a white three-piece suit. His hair was cut like John Lennon's. He had round glasses. And he had a white that. And, uh, and he, was, he sort of discovered Aerosmith. And, uh, well, he, yeah, I think he did discover them, Simon to Columbia. And then he got them to Geffen and he, he masterminded their more recent, well, not, it's not so recent now, but you know, that sort of like late 90s thing that they had you know, it was great albums they made and um, yeah he was really into American rock you know so in that sense he was maybe not a great choice for Wang Chung because I always thought of us as a sort of art rock kind of band and it would have been maybe good to have someone who was a little more broad <laughs> in their focus you know but on the other hand he was very tuned to to the kind you know he just sort of would listen to something I remember him listening <laughs> to various things and, that I wrote and going like, I don't get it <laughs> uh, you know, but he'd say that, you know, not, and I didn't feel upset by that. And I remember playing him to live and die in LA one time, the demo yeah. of that song, you know, 
don't know if you know that song, but it sort of starts kind of quite tough and you know sort of like a, I don't know like what like an American rock track, but then it sort of stops and goes very melodic and you know and sort of very beautiful for for the chorus, you know. And he listened to it and went, it goes down in the chorus. <laughs> and for him, that was like, why would you do that? Why would you do that great setup and then go down in the chorus? You know? So, uh, but again, he didn't say rewrite it. He just went. Oh, really? That's what okay. you want to do, you know, yeah. that's, that's, and so. So you still allowed quite a lot of freedom then. That's what I always yeah. loved about rock music, pop music. Yeah, the, you were really free to kind of do what you wanted. I mean, there, you had to have hits, and our, eventually our time ran out with not having hits. Yeah, uh, and that's that's how it is. I get that. You know, so there's a sort of game to play. As long as you're willing to play the game, you know, then you you can stay in the room. <laughs> yeah. thing. But what you do, what beyond having played the game is, is really up to you, you know? and so you know in, it, because of that Wang Chung albums tend to be very eclectic you know because I'm experimenting with some mad it's usually an attempt to recreate Hey Jude on every album you know, <laughs> you know so with a long outro and that sort of big you know long format and stuff you know? but, and by the end of that period how many albums have you got through we did um, uh, so th we did four albums okay. for Geffen yeah, yeah and uh, we've done the Wang Chung Aristotle did you feel like you'd gone on the real musical journey? Or, yeah, you know? and I think by the end of it, Nick and I couldn't stand each other. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's fairly normal then. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, because he, he sort of, I think, could see, you know, classically, he could see how Wang Chung was a sort of product. So it's always you and Nick? Yeah. And, and, and how many yeah. Others well, were? to begin with, it was yeah. me, Nick, and Darren, who was yeah. the drummer. Okay. Thing. But, but Darren, again, I think the thing about the 80s, you know, what's different from the 80s, from other eras of rock music is that it be became all about writing songs yeah. as opposed to performing. And you had drum machines and synthesizers, so you didn't need a band anymore, really. So that's why you have all these duos, you know, Tears for Fears, well, other duos, you know, yeah. or you know, they would boil down to a duo because you usually had a lyricist and a, and a, and a music person and they would churn out the songs and you get producers in and uh, session musicians and so when electronic music sorry when digital mm. technology started kind of coming in in the 80s it was interesting yeah. you were saying that you really fought with the technology to get what you wanted yeah. I've heard other people say that um, yeah. the, the guys who run the human league mm -hmm. uh, became Evan 17 mm. and similar things battling with the technology but yeah. it, it seemed to me as a fan listening that, that it kind of went in eventually mm. it just it seemed like everyone was following the technology mm -hmm. and things became quite dull and predictable musically mm -hmm. um, and I think today's a lot a, a lot more interesting mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like the, the, the people have mastered the technology over yeah. a very yeah. very long time so uh, yeah it's interesting so mm -hmm. it'd be good to move on to the kind of next part of your career because there's still quite a lot to, mm -hmm. to cover but I wondered if uh, anyone had any kind of burning questions to I uh, wanted to ask before we kind of move on over, the, you know, the, the kind of last period, or should we just... Yes? Okay. <clears throat> a lot of your names and titles are quite well thought out. Like, you were named Japanese. Yeah. Uh, John, the yellow block. Yeah. So, it's part of the Japanese Yeah. Is there anything behind points on the curve? It's actually a stealing the title of a piece by Luciano Berlio, who was my sort of favourite of the kind of avant-garde European composers that I encountered at university. He wrote a piece called Points on the Curve to Find, 
which is based on a poem by E. Cummings, apparently. Uh, and it's an instrumental sort of piece for a small orchestra that I just loved. And I just love that sense of points on the curve and albums, you know, and the general double entendre of, of, that, of that title, you know. Uh, so, yeah, so points on the curve just came from, from that, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's usually some reference in most, most of the titles come from some outside source that I've processed and disguised or sometimes not disguised but yeah good um, so when Wang Chung uh, when success kind of uh, you know moved out of the spotlight was that a sudden break what 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 did you go away and have ch more children or did you, <laughs> you know, did children, you think you were uh, retiring out four. <laughs> so uh, you were no, in four Nine, I, had, I had three kids by 1984. Oh, okay. I was born in May 1984 when well, I was on tour yeah. in a classic rock star fashion. Yeah. Um, Did you immediately try to, to, to move on with your career or did you take a break? Or? Um, I think with the Wang Chung thing, I, I had this really distinct feeling of, of being on a carousel and just really wanting to get off. Right. Travel. That was the feeling. So, yeah, I moved out of London and moved into a a house like right in the middle of nowhere <laughs> I say no it was in Kent you know so it's not that far from <laughs> somewhere but it was on a farm estate it wasn't in a village you know, and it was uh, uh, it was probably uh, when I look back on it I should probably I know there's no should that's what I did and it all worked great you know but I probably could have stayed in London stayed with Wang Chung kind of got my head around as I now say you know there was a game to play could have played the game at that yeah. point and who knows where the band would have gone at that point. But you were quite comfortable with yeah. your choices. Yes, I, I certainly was, yeah. And I think because, maybe because I'd been to music college, because I saw music from lots of different directions, uh, I, I guess I was really pretty tired of, you know, rock music, pop music yeah. and stuff. Although having said that, uh, as a sort of the, the parting deal for the band breaking up, was that David Massey, who was managing us, uh, started working for, for Sony, and Sony at that time owned Columbia Records and Epic Records. So Nick got signed to Epic and I got signed to Columbia and I did a solo album on Columbia. Oh, did you? I thought your first solo album was 2020. Exactly. Uh, the first one was that, but it never came out. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I remember reading that. So. Yeah, so... And that was very political, I think. Partly to do with the fact that David was had decided to work for Epic Records yeah. and the people at Columbia... <laughs> hated him for that that he hadn't come to work for them and so they were sort of showing him by not putting my record out that they were you know I felt that I was in the middle of and this was much later at the time it just felt like I, I went into this sort of purgatory <laughs> basically for about three years of having made this record and, and sort of it's going to come out it's not going to come out it's going to do this you know that was a very difficult time actually yeah. yeah really difficult and nothing worse for an artist I don't think than to do work and not have it out in the world did you manage to uh, take what you'd done and, and express it elsewhere? Or I, I, think, I can imagine that must have been really frustrating. Was that? Yeah, yeah. I think I just sort of... Yeah. Was it a real knockback? It was, really. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, because I think for a while you start to... Th you know, when you're successful, you think, well, that's because of me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but then you realise when you're not successful that it's got nothing to do with you really it's to do with all sorts of other things you know and you're just sort of on this wave if you, you luck out on it for a while you know but it doesn't mean you're not any good and stuff do you mean it just means that you're not getting the breaks or you're not in the right place at the right time so I think I got the sense of just well just keep 
writing and keep keep moving forward. Okay. In that way. And where were you with kind of broader musically? What what what, were you, what did you think of what was the music mm. industry was like, or not the music industry, yeah. popular music? What yeah. was well, I guess you know, I'm was sort it inspiring of, you. Was it interesting you? Did you? 1990s when I'm right. doing this solo album, you know. So 92, 93, 94 was all a bit of a write-off sort of thing. But also I was pretty exhausted, I think, yeah. as well. You know. uh, but then I did uh, three really great projects. One of which was my friend Chris Hughes, who produced Dance All Days, phoned me up and said, um, "I'm working on this album uh, with a band called The Definition of Sound, and we need a guitar player just to come down and do." It do a day's work, you know, just play some parts and stuff. So I was like, great. So Chris lived down in Bath. So I, I went down and listened to what they were doing and played a bit. And I ended up staying there for like six months and got completely involved in that album. And that meant that I started listening to the music that was current at the time. Because as a producer, you know, as an artist, my sense was always, this is my idea. I don't want to listen to that band and this artist and stuff. I don't want to get knocked off course yeah. with other influences. I just want to plough this forward, which is not a good way to be. I, I really get that. You've got to be much more open and, and, and sort of bring things to the party or let things be brought to the party. <laughs> let there be a party, basically. You know? um, but uh, as a producer, it's like, you know, here's this song, you know, what do we need to do to make it better? You're dealing with what's actually there in front of you rather than what's in your head, if you know what I mean. Uh, and so I started listening to, so at that time, you know, Massive Attacks, Blue Lines was the big record, Bjork's Post, the Portis, first Portishead album. Yeah. And I remember those three albums, and then Aphex Twins, um, the album with the, just the cymbals on it, sort of like a double album. I remember listening to that with Chris and just being blown away by that, but because it related a lot to the sort of Stockhausen sense of electronics that I'd sort of taken in when I was at university. And, uh, but yeah, I really started listening to those bands. And, and loving it, you know, absolutely loving it. And also working with Chris, he would do this thing where the definition of sound, you know, were two uh, black musicians who were, you know, what was interesting about what they'd done with their records, they sampled a lot of white rock. I remember they'd sampled a Blind Faith track and they'd sampled a, couple, a Zeppelin thing, I think, you know, and my job was basically to replay these things so they didn't have to use the original samples. But of course, in the process of doing that, it sort of destroyed the, kind of aesthetic of what, what they did but anyway so they were sort of into the music they were into but they didn't really know about Bob Dylan and stuff so Chris we'd have dinner together in the evenings and Chris would play an album to sort of it sounds patronising but to sort of educate them but it was more in a, in a sort of like you know just to get more music and that. but what he was really doing was educating me you know? and I remember him playing Blonde on Blonde which I knew you know the Dylan album 66 Dylan album I'd heard people's older brothers play it at the time but um, but I didn't get it at all but I really got it working with Chris and he also played Miles Davis's um, Kind of Blue and that hit me like a thunderbolt suddenly the, the space that that music's in and both of those artists are very similar in the way <coughs> they worked where they're all about spontaneity so my sense of making a record was learned from Chris in a sense which was you just chisel away at every single little detail of it until everything's perfect and then when you stand back it should all look great you know and and I really got that's not how you make records you know you kind of press record you have great people in the room you somehow get in the zone and you play and out of that comes something great you know mm. and and that's been much more how I've worked since that time so you started to really open up yeah during that period, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Uh, you mentioned art as well, so mm-hmm. well, you, 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 you read a lot with it. I've always read a lot, yeah. And uh, yeah, I was reading a lot of it. I, I, again, I sort of wonder, I always remember I bought uh, Nietzsche's um, Thus Spake, also Zarathustra, the Penguin Classics edition of it. But I got that what attracted me to it wasn't like knowing anything about Nietzsche. It was that the covers of those Penguin Classics were a bit like album covers. You know, they were, they sort of drew you in. They were colourful. They were like bits of art that I didn't know but wanted to know. And uh, so you started accumulating all these bits of chunks of literature and, and stuff because of the covers. Much as I got into classical music, Often I'd see a cover, a painting that I liked, you know, on the front of an album cover, and, mm. and buy it, and realise it was a, you know, Schubert piano music or something, and uh, and I sort of there was a massive sort of program of self-education that went on, mm. especially through the eighties actually. You know, but I had a lot of through time through the eighties, okay. through the eighties when I was yeah. supposed to be listening to Tears for Fears and stuff, you know, I was really listening to Wagner most of the time, and later Shostakovich I got into. Right. Right. <clears throat> Wagner, Nietzsche. Yeah, stuff. yes, it's slightly yes. worried about it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I could do all that. <laughs> um, so Wang Chung were, were kind of out of the, out of the, out of your life, yeah. if I like. So you then started getting into you didn't done your solo album. Yeah, there was the stuff in Chris, and then the, out of doing my aborted Columbia solo album, the guy who worked as an engineer on that for me, was working on all the Genesis remasters. And Tony Banks wanted to do a solo album. So uh, Nick, with, uh, Nick Davis was the engineer. He said, you should, get, you should meet Jack and let him sing some of the songs, see whether you like it. Mm. And I ended up doing a, one of Tony's solo albums. So that, that was a real experience, because as a kid, I loved the sort of Peter Gabriel Genesis. I can remember listening to Watcher of the Skies before I went to school to sort of like just get myself through the day in a sense I mean, it's like, mm. not that I had a bad time at school but I found it so kind of I don't know Watcher of the Skies got me through many mm. sort of you know rainy mornings you know and uh, so to work with Tony and uh, have his kind of approach to songwriting and, and also music production and stuff was, was fantastic you know and we really got on although we're quite different people in many ways but he's got this deep interest in classical music right but he likes stuff like Rachmaninoff and all the sort of soppy chocolate boxes. Stuff, you know? So I would always tease him about that and, and say you should be listening to Mozart. Is music. that anything that have you thought about? I don't know, maybe getting getting really more into classical music or composition or I, I talk, um, yeah, every writing opera maybe. I, I, I think everyone who writes. Uh, There's a couple of people who want to write <laughs> opera. Make an opera. This man here wants to write an opera with me. Uh, yeah, and another friend of mine who's a really Kelvin Kakora, a wonderful poet. We started working on something. But I think you know, every new year I sort of think, this year I'm going to write something substantial. Well, it strikes me well, that you're becoming more and more prolific. <laughs> I am, yes. Because <laughs> you I did get to, uh, you said to release, so it's not your first album, but it's your first release on Primitive in yeah. 2020. It's and the first released. Sorry. First released one, but yeah. then yeah. you had that slight problem of it being, is that the one that was released uh, just at the time that lockdown and... Well, um, yeah. Yeah. It was pretty much, yeah. yeah so yeah. in a way, that was canned as well, in, yeah. in a kind of way. But it is out there, and it's yeah. a really good, really good listen. I'd really recommend it. Yeah. So you went to ground and then yeah. went it was to... A, yeah, sort of difficult time in my life, really. Um, my wife passed away in 2014, uh, and then I got into a, another relationship quite quickly, and, and I think that was very difficult. And, uh, and it was really the sort of meltdown after that, 
and trying to process the sort of loss. I didn't think that that was what I was doing, but that is what I was doing. Yeah. And the songs on Primitive are, are various attempts to try and to process that stuff, I think. And in that sense, the, the songs really come from a deep place, you know, and in that sense, it's, it's a great album, I mm. think, you know. Uh, and it's also an album that I made, you know, just in my front room, <laughs> basically, you know, rather than in a studio. Although I got people to help me with, with aspects of it, the drums and uh, some of the programming, and um, I became friendly, I guess, you know, the, the period after, you know, so if, if working with Chris on the production stuff and with Tony Banks on his album was the 90s, uh, in the 2000s, when I moved to Canterbury, I met uh, quite a lot of jazz musicians in Canterbury and became very interested in bands like Soft Machine and um, uh, Henry Cow and Hatfield and the North and these what are called Canterbury scene type bands, you know, and found myself writing this sort of prog, jazzy, proggy rock, you know, and, uh, and there were musicians in Canterbury who wanted to play it, you know, so that all sort of came to a kind of uh, fruition as well and I did a couple of albums where Chris produced them um, we recorded them down in Bath and uh, yeah so that was a very sort of creative time as well mm. actually yeah. yeah and so um, I guess yeah by the time I got to yeah, 2019-20 that's I'd done a lot of that sort of jazz stuff I, it's not, I'm not a jazz player you know? again when you say why don't I write some classical music you know, it's because I, I can't really do you know what I mean? yeah. in the same way that I can't really write jazz piece you know? but I can mess around with the genres and mm. stuff but I think as an artist you have a sort of voice and that voice was uh, is sort of rooted in, in pop music yeah. essentially yeah. And, and songs you know that's what I understand yeah. I understand that language deeply mm. okay yeah. that's good yeah. uh, actually uh, interesting what you say about uh, what you're going through with, with Primitive because I, I wrote a quote then from a, a review that I read and it says it shows incredible honesty and bravery by showing us uh, his raw feelings. Mm -hmm. There's also something of a philosophical slant to some of the tracks as Jack contemplates mortality, fate and free will and how these could affect our lives. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that's interesting. That makes, yeah. that, that, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Um, I think it should be your turn. We, uh, yeah, it's time to give us a rest <laughs> and, and give us your thoughts and... Um, Ideas and questions, and gentlemen, uh, yep. uh, So a lot, a lot of bands have revisited their catalogs by orchestrating them. Yeah. So I should say that for orchestography. Uh huh. Would be lucky to say that. Um, Very good. Yeah. Angels as well. We are. I mean, Def Leppard are releasing a lot of great albums. Oh, so okay. Yours is Angels. I'm always going back to every. Thank you. Lyrics and without lyrics. Okay, great. So thanks for that. Mm. Yeah, well, there's a there's a record label that it, the album came out on called August Day, uh, run by this guy, who sort of tries basically doing these orchestral albums with various different bands that, that he likes, you know. So he, I think he made his money somewhere, you know. So there's a chunk of money that he draws on, you know. And obviously, there's a chance that he could make it back if anything got used in a movie or something like that. But so far, I think we still owe him a chunk of money. <laughs> but uh, but no, the process was that he would, um, in the first instance, agree a sort of set a, a sort of album list with us. And then we used a guy whose name was I keep thinking his name's Peter Stringfellow, 
but it's not, he's someone else, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. But his name was Peter, uh, and he was a string player, and uh, he was a string fellow in that sense. Um, so he would do the basic orchestrations, you know. Uh, but then I did work on it with him to a, a certain extent, sort of thing. So like the, uh, the bass clarinet, for example, and I was always trying to push him to do, because he would do like lots of gushy strings, which is you know, how those records work. But I was always trying to push him to do more woodwind stuff. But they wouldn't pay for woodwind players. <laughs> so they, so the, working with the City of Prague Orchestra was because um, this guy had, had, the record company guy had a connection with them, a new a, a guy who fixed orchestral stuff for movies and stuff. And so he got it, got in with him. And, but we basically used the strings and the brass players from that orchestra. But then the woodwind are deemed that the sonic capability of the woodwind and the way it fits within a scoring of that sort is you can use samples, basically. So that was a bit annoying for me because I really wanted it, you know, the, the characteristic of like Stravinsky's orchestral sound is a lot more reliance on the woodwinds to get you a much more reedy sort of sound. But we, we got it in places, you know, I think on um, overwhelming feeling, the way that's orchestrated is, is very good. Um, to Live and Die in LA, I try and... I wanted the woodwind to sort of try and take the front rank on that, you know, which we succeeded to a certain extent. So the answer to your question is, yeah, I got involved in it quite heavily, but I didn't actually do the scoring myself from scratch. You know, yeah. And I love the video. Yeah, that, that, was, that was fun to do, yeah. And it was a lovely experience working in Prague, you know, and uh, uh, I got to spend a couple of extra days there and went to hear the Prague Philharmonic playing Mozart's Prague Symphony, actually, which was like, I count as one of the highlights of my life. It was just unbelievably great. Yeah. Yeah. Wendy? This isn't so much a personal question, mm. um, more just look, looking, thinking about your observations of working in the world of pop music and um, I suppose I'm, I'm just wondering how, how technology in music has changed music. Hugely. Um, and <laughs> is it sort of, and I suppose what's the dynamic there? Is it sort of like technology providing opportunities? It, yes, it's that sense of, you know, that kind of, because you, you talked a little bit about that kind of having to deal with, for example, limitations of money, wanting mm. to use the authentic music, not mm. the pre-recorded or whatever. Yeah. So obviously one has to make compromises. Yeah, all the time. Um, yeah. But to what extent does that, so if you do feel things of sort of um, technology helps or doesn't help? Both, inevitably. You yeah. Know. But I think it affects things right at the level of so songwriting. You know. So I think when I was a kid writing songs on guitar or piano, but let's say guitar, you know, so you, you get an idea like Dance All Days, for example, bling, bling, those three chords play them for a bit and then you sort of get bored with them and you think I could play them like that okay well, that's like a middle eight and then, and then this bit sort of leads on from it and you sort of think in this you think about variations and and sort of difference or, or I did anyway you know and being repetitive because you're playing it is just boring really you know? whereas when you're writing a song with a computer uh, you get an idea and then you copy and paste it all the way down the track so that tends to be the track and then if you try and change that it suddenly set, like everything drops out of the track so you're, you're sort of stuck with this repetitive thing. It's not stuck with, but I think the mentality has yeah. gradually shifted so that most pop songs now have one central idea and everything is sort of related to that. You, you would never get a song like 
good vibrations, <laughs> you know, with a sort of different changes of tempo and structural changes, because that's just too hard to do with technology. I mean, it's possible now, you know, if you've got the brain to sort of think about it in the first place. But most people are, you know, using technology as we always did, you know, with electric guitars and stuff, you use it in a very spontaneous, you want an instant hit back from it, you know, and the instant hit from working with a computer is drum loops and, you know, the, the sort of repetitive hypnotic sense of, of what computers do. And that's all great, but it's a very, it leads to a very different sort of pop music than uh, a kid sitting in his bedroom mm. playing guitar and smoking a joint and just going down that rabbit hole of the possibilities of that. But uh, since the kind of death of the CD and, uh, mm. you know, copying and everything, um, there's been a real revival in, in live music. So mm -hmm. bands have had to yep. find ways to, to find revenue streams. Yep. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's kind of widely accepted that that's actually been a, a good thing for, for popular music. So, I mean, I, I really recognise what you say about mm -hmm. that kind of you know, repetitive nature yeah. of things. I and mean, what always interested me in music, the music that I liked is, is that uh, popular music was was you always felt like you were going on a journey. There's a definite mm. beginning, middle and end. Mm -hmm. uh, and for a long time with, with music, the first couple of bars were the same as the last couple. It just mm. went on, you know. Yeah. And I, it feels to me there's a lot more surprises in music now. And I, mm. uh, and I presume it's partly to do with the, maybe my imagination, uh, partly to do with the revival of live music. Uh, maybe people have got a mas mm. master the technology where it's, it's evolved or... Yeah. I mean, we're talking in quite generalised mm. terms here, so oh, I think yeah. you, you could go into certain artists and sort of yeah. see how, you know, so uh, when we're talking about, you know, a band like King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, for example, a band <laughs> I know, you know, who are very much a live band, but who produce like maybe three albums a year and stuff. I don't know whether they're so prolific anymore. But certainly, yeah, they're a very dynamic, incredibly musical, completely out there band. It's kind of great. I guess I'm thinking of sort of chart music. Yeah. Way. But... In a way, chart music was always a bit crap. Even in the supposedly heydays of the sixties and seventies, you know, there was a bit of a divide between, you know, the manufactured music and the music done by bands who are creating the next sort of cutting edge, as it were. I guess. Uh, any hands? You want? Yeah. Yeah. I heard the majority irony that Saturday Night Live's version of Donald Trump and COVID. The no, I was thinking about that today actually because um, you know we're talking about doing these reissues and um, uh, you know reissuing all the back catalogue, uh, which has been you know gestating, well, not more than gestating. We've been trying to sort it out for years, like four or five years now. The pandemic's partly to blame, you know, um, but also us procrastinating and. I suppose trying to find a good home for it, really, and a label that will actually put some money <laughs> into promoting it and, and so on, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, sorry, I've lost the drift of what I was saying. <laughs> but, yeah, that's, that's it, okay. the, the, the Chinese thing, do you know what I mean? I was thinking about merch, do you know what I mean? And about the Huang Chung album cover, which had the Chinese characters for Huang Chung. And, you know, we've got these dreadful T-shirts. Greg won't mind me saying this, do you know what I mean? Greg's our merch guy, but he's, he's got this whole kind of track people don't like your arty sense of, you know, like a discreet Wang Chung in white on a black t-shirt sort of thing. They want 80s stuff, colourful and, you know, sort of referring back to that time. 
So I sort of go along with all of that. You know. But I thought, um, you know, a cat with the Chinese characters, I think, would be really cool. Or that's, you know. And then I started thinking, like, maybe this is like a really bad time <laughs> to emphasize <laughs> the Wang Chun Chinese connection. <laughs> and we'll just keep it in that kind of like, oh, it's all just a joke and it's not Chinese. <laughs> yeah, I want to know what you, you know, what kind of relationship you have with your early career. It's mm. interesting, or, you know, what you think maybe of how other people have dealt with it. It's mm. kind of interesting. People are very interesting relationships with their with their start you know yeah. want nothing more to do with it yeah. or you know they they make a living out of just getting onto the revival circuit yeah. happy to do that again i remember looking at some bands that i've really idolized when i was young thinking they were really amazing and original and then you see them just kind of rehashing what they do mm. all the time mm. you know as you get older, you realise they've got to pay the rent as well, like the rest yeah. of us, and they're probably quite enjoying it as yeah. well. But well, I do a bit of rehashing, absolutely. Sort of, uh, yeah, and uh, so we're touring in, in America yeah. this year. But you're actually making, it. yeah. But that's that's you know, I, I guess there's a demand for Wang Chun to play in America, uh, in North America, that is, and Mexico and Canada, well, all sorts of places. Mm. And uh, yeah, I guess my relationship with my own work is healthy really, in the sense that. I sort of am more accepting of the things that I felt uncomfortable with at the time. You know? um, and uh, yeah, I, I suppose I just get off on the fact that people love it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And therefore, to be able to play Dance All Days to a, a crowd of 20,000 people or, or mm. even 200 people, you know, uh, or even just the people in this room, you know, <laughs> is, 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 there's still a great deal of pleasure to be had from that. And I think some of the songs stand up well over time, you know. And also, I think, me personally, as a musician, I'm still interested in being a better guitar player and a better singer and stuff. And I think I probably am both of those things compared with where I was at in the 80s, you know. So, as a musician, I think you're always moving forward. And in a sense, using the old Wang Chun songs is a good workout, in a sense, on, on that front. You're doing six weeks of touring and, you know, it's, it's just good for your brain and your physicality and everything. I'm just wondering, do you write music as well as writing lyrics? Yes, I create the music and the lyrics. You do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you mean write it, write it? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I, usually uh, when I'm writing... I mean read and write music. Yeah, because. yeah. So like when I get ideas, quite often they come from noodling at the piano and I'll sketch them on music paper to begin with. Uh, although I use an iPhone a lot more because that's always there. And I sometimes to get the feel or something and the tempo and I'll, I'll record myself playing it. Just, but I find when you start recording, you start getting fatigued quite quickly with an idea and you can get bored with the best thing about it, <laughs> if you see what I mean. So I try and keep it in that sort of liquid space of just being on paper so that every time I come to it, I have to sort of recreate it. And each time I recreate it slightly differently. And it, it's like a, songs to me are kind of like loads of bits and pieces that are all sort of like an unformed star sort of thing and they gradually get a gravitational pull that pulls them together and then it, it starts to come together like that that's how I find writing as opposed to some straight line of tunnelling out of an idea or something but um, yeah there's, there's lots of ideas and they begin to sort of coalesce in a certain way and I find having stuff on paper is, is the best way to, to let that process happen you know. okay uh, Elizabeth you, you mentioned that uh, you were a PhD. Are you still a PhD? 
Um, not in, no, no. I did a bit of teaching when I left university, and then I taught at the university in Canterbury between about 2000 and 2002, 2012, I think. And, um, well, I wonder your relationship with the young guys. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a relationship with the young guys? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my. It, it, it's very nice, you know, for, for, for us people that are not so young. <laughs> yes. And uh, it's, it's nice to have a relationship with young people and yeah. adopt them. And, yeah. uh, and so I wonder, and, and also I wonder, how do you see the new musicians? Yeah, is, good question. Are they different from when you were a musician, a young musician? Yeah. So, the, the drummer, well, a couple of guys that I used to teach at, at the University in Canterbury went on to form a band called Sid Arthur. Uh, and they, uh, they're based in Canterbury and they're just hugely influenced by the Canterbury bands, like Soft Machine and, and stuff. And, uh, and they took a sort of course of, um, you know, they were like homegrown, making their own records and stuff, you know, but then they decided to go to America. They got a PRS grant to go and play at South by Southwest, which is a sort of a American talent show, I suppose, you know, but on a massive scale, you know, and they got signed there to a label, to a, a, a bit of Universal, basically a small label in Universal, and made an album there, you know. And I sort of thought my experience of probably saying to them, it's hard in this country because people won't put their money on the table, you know, whereas in America they will. I, I think, I'm not saying it was my idea that they went to America, but it was no coincidence, I don't think, that they sort of adopted that, that path, you know. So that, I felt that was a good influence. And, and Joel and Josh have both played on my solo albums and, the, and I sort of put my records out through their record label and try and support their record label as well. So I don't sort of take the money from the sales of my records and make sure that I sort of give them a bit of money to keep the label going so that they can do their own thing. You know? I mean, not massively, but I support them. You know? So, yeah. And when I was teaching, that was a very important part of my life, I think. And I think it's a time in my life where I actually got some confidence. <laughs> I know it seems strange to say you'd think being on stage in front of 80,000 people on the Madison Square Garden would give you... You do hear that quite confidence, a lot. But it yeah. doesn't. It's sort yeah. of like, it kind of, it's really challenging. And uh, I don't know, it deals with a different part of your mm. ego, not a terribly great part of it. I think. But being in a class of kids like this and talking to them about music and sort of realising that they did actually listen to what I said and did go and listen to the stuff I said, go and listen to it. And sort of, you know, that I was able to influence them. I think a mixture of that and also producing a couple of bands, you know. I did an album with a band called Arcana, who were, uh, that would be sort of late 90s. I think that was actually where Nick, Nick was working for Warner Brothers, I right. think, you know, as an A&R person. And, uh, and by that time, we were getting on fine again, you know, and he sort of said, I've got this band, they're, they're great, you, you should sort of sit with them. And, and I got on really well with those guys. So again, they were younger musicians, and, uh, and I produced one of their albums that... Didn't really do anything, unfortunately, which is a great album, you know. And uh, but I think again, I remember one time saying to them, the, the way this track should be, you know, we should record it on. They had an analog tape recorder there; everything was digital, you know. But I said we should record the band on analog tape at a fast speed and then slow it down and then transfer it to digital and then use that as the basic track to get this slightly psychedelic sort of like a Beatles, like True Fields or Rain or something like that, you know. 
And, uh, and I said all that, and I could sort of feel this kind of sense in the room, <laughs> yeah, like, Jesus, he's going on at the Beatles again. <laughs> <laughs> but when I came in the following morning, they set up the tape machine, they were all ready to go. I mean, they were kind of like, yeah, let's do it. And I sort of thought, this is great. They've listened to what I've said. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it worked. You were there, Sadly, George Martin. I was there, George Martin. <laughs> yeah, quite uh, as effective. Your hand up. Yeah, I, I, I kind of... Um, I, Want to push you a little bit on what you were saying about the charts, mm -hmm. current chart music. Okay. You, you, you said there's always a, a divide mm. between the sort of throwaway kind of stuff and, and, and other stuff. That, um, I'm kind of thinking about this and thinking, actually, I don't know any records in the charts. <laughs> I do. But I do have a, I just have a, a, a sense that the yeah. charts are very different to how they used to be. Yeah. And yeah. you were saying, um, if you go to America, then people take you more seriously. Yeah. Um, uh, Boy George has said recently that he's been said, told that if you want to have a hit, then you have to get a sweep. Okay. Not, yeah. yeah. So we're the yeah. charts. What's the happening? charts, yeah, yeah. So I think about, you know, um, I guess, you know, what do I know about the charts now? Nothing, really. You know. um, back in the 80s, I mean, you had Top of the Pops, you know, which we got to do a couple of times, and love it or loathe it, uh, that was an interesting show in the sense that it would have this incredible diversity of music. And the charts in those days, I think, did reflect quite a diversity. You know, I think about David Bowie as Ziggy Stardust being on top of the pops house, sort of like, sort of shattering that was for many people. You know, inspiring for many people, like upsetting for a lot of other people. You know. Um, and so the charts were this sort of like hodgepodge of all sorts of different things. And in, in the UK, I think sort of great in many ways. You know. I remember a, an American, it wasn't John Colodner, it was another A&R guy saying to me, you know, if you're an American A&R guy, you sign talent from Britain, you know, uh, that's already been successful in, in the UK and try and break them in America. And, and that's a good business model. But to get a British band that you kind of like and try and break them in the UK, forget it. You just can't do it because it's not a, it's not a big enough market to get any return on the investment. And B, in, in those days, that's probably true now, you can't buy the BBC in the way you could buy radio in America and get a record sort of played and stuff. You know, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but that's... Pay it's like, it's like Paoli. Paoli, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Here yeah. 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 and then behind. Along similar lines, but um, I was wondering what influence things like Spotify yeah. My daughter, who's 20, yeah. um, she uh, listens to a lot of music from my, that I listened to right. when I was young, and a lot of it she's picked up from. And she makes the point to me that our music is very different, and it's yeah. very varied, mm -hmm. whereas um, she says when you go to clubs now, mm -hmm. unless they're 80s clubs, right. which there is one in Leeds apparently, okay. um, then they're all pretty much the same, there's no variation even when they're going out clubbing or right. it's all I sort of get that. She yeah. says it's boring, yeah. but I was wondering if um, if that has an influence on young people in terms of a wider because mm. there's kind of more obviously there was the Beatles and then yep. when we were in the eighties there was the eighties and the sixties. Yep. Yep. And now there's like the eighties and the and the nineties. Yeah. 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 And the nineties and the sixties yep. and the fifties. You yep. know, so yep. they've got more yeah, yeah. Now I see Spotify, you know, like if my, the guy, Sam Bailey, who I've worked with a lot, 
uh, on my jazz stuff, you know, piano player. Uh, again, like me, he's not really a jazz musician. He's really into experimental music, you know. So his sense of uh, uh, music is it's never been better because there's so much diversity. It's like he, he can put out an album of solo piano music, you know, that sells 10 copies, but he's not really bothered about all that. Do you know I mean? he, doesn't, he doesn't see it like I saw it when I was a kid, like, wow, this is a way you could... I never did it for money, if you know what I mean, but I, I saw that you could make a life out of it sort of thing. For him, he teaches, he runs his sort of experimental music evenings and, and earns money through doing that, you know. He, he earns money through lots of different places, you know. And, and making a record to him is kind of like, recordings are just like photographs, you know, and you can make them on your iPhone now, you know. And, it, and that's how I was yesterday, and today I'm completely different, you know. And I think when I was making records in the 80s, there was this sense that making a recording was making the definitive for all time, for all posterity version of the song that you'd written and that it had to be kind of like a, a sort of achieve a sort of perfection. And then live performances were attempts to replicate that, that sort of masterpiece, yeah. as it were, you know. Whereas now it's completely reverse, you know, and recordings are just provisional um, things, you know. And for me, that that's a massive change in the, in the sort of aesthetics of of how the music's looked at, you know, because again, when talking to you, I, I get that seeing live bands and you know, bands performing is, is the sort of litmus test in a sense. Whereas for me, recorded music was really how I experienced nearly all the bands I got into. I went to very few gigs when I was a kid, partly because I lived in Gillingham and couldn't yeah, yeah. afford to go to London to see bands, you know. Uh, but uh, everything was, you know, the musical sort of knockout points were Sergeant Pepper when that came out. Queen's Disraeli Gears when that came out, or Electric Ladyland when that came out. You know, these records were massive to me, you know. And then making a record, making Points on the Curve in Abbey Road Studio Two, was a, a huge thing for me. You know, that that was a real achievement. You know. And then the live playing was all a bit of not a chore, but I found it very stressful and uh, and very mostly disappointing. You know, so. But you're right. It was that people expected a version of. Yeah. You know, and, and as you got that, you were a bit disappointed. Yeah. And I think there, there always was a little bit of a divide between different types of music fans. Yeah. Yeah. I know it might be a class thing as well, actually. Yeah. You know, I really like live music. And I think, well, what live music do you like? You know, yeah. just, or I like vinyls, or, but what's on it? And I think, you know, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. But yeah, yeah I think yeah. there was that divide. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But to answer your question, I think Spotify is, is you know, the, the range of stuff is incredible. So I think people's playlists these days are much more eclectic. Than when I was a kid, and you know, uh, and I think that's in some ways a good thing. Maybe it's also makes music a bit of a supermarket of possibilities, mm. and you don't have that tribal commitment to a like being a David Bowie fan was a sort of lifestyle choice <laughs> in a sense. It, it wasn't just because you liked the music; it's because you liked what you sort of stood for implicitly as well. You know, yeah. so that it was more you were more bound up in it. All it was, and it was culturally more part of the life of the. Of, of everyday cultural life in a sense wasn't it yeah. you know yeah. whereas yeah. now it's just like it's, well, it's kind of entertainment and, yeah no, that's and an interesting yeah. place um, I've got so, a few hands yeah. <laughs> well, a couple of hands the gent there and then the woman at the back um, yep you first you, you had you. Um, the ornamental ele element oh yeah <laughs> what, 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 what is that <laughs> <laughs> I did have I think an earring um, in the days of having a pierced ear, which had this ivory ele elephant 
carving, you know, hanging off of it. You know. And I, I was just meditating really on the iron, worse than irony of having a piece of ivory, you know, from a, a real elephant sort of thing, you know, in the shape of an elephant as this decorative thing, you know. But I just love that ornamental elephant element, the, the alliteration of it really, you know. And, um, and also, I think it's one of the first songs I wrote using a synthesizer and a drum machine and stuff. You know. Yeah, thank you. It also uses a bit of, um, this is real inside track now. So it's, it's, it's all on one droney sort of note, isn't it? You know, Because in those days, when we did live shows, we had a tape recorder just playing that one synth note all the way through the, the tune because we couldn't afford a synthesizer. And uh, But at the end, it breaks into this sort of almost orchestral section that I stole from a piece called Matisse de Mahler by Paul Hindemith, which is a sort of beautiful bit of German sort of 1930s music sort of thing, but um, yeah, I completely ripped it off from there. So I, I do use this sort of blend of, you know, the classical influences don't go uh, wasted, really. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Shirley? Um, I was just wondering what you think about the state of Legal issues, uh, yeah. plagiarism, yeah. plagiarism generally. Yeah, I, I find it's, it's it's all about litigation and lawyers. I think rather than about music, you know. Um, yeah. But have you? Well, okay. Then have you ever sensed anyone, you know, being guilty of it if you want to see it that way? Uh, um, yeah. I, I think and someone did send me a track actually that. I think there was a track somebody sent me and there was like. Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran ripped off Dance No, it was a, someone who sort of like, it sounded a bit like Dance with Days. But I see it as flattering. If someone was to sort of you know, nick one of my songs, I'd be quite, yeah, good for you, you know. And I do sort of think that being an artist is about stealing things, as I've just mm. talked about with the, the Hindemith, you know. And I've stolen all sorts of things you know and there and i remember when we did um on the last album we did forgetting the warmer side of call there's a track on it called the world in which we live and uh and i had a lot of fun doing a whole kind of sampling collage at the beginning of it much as i'd done when i was at university and uh, you know the beatles revolution nine and stockhausen's hymnum and all these pieces that used bits of found sound and chopped them up and, and so we would there's a bit of um, Jimmy Swaggart, the TV evangelist, talking. There's a bit of classical music. There's a bit of this, and I have, you know, I sort of made this sound collage, you know. And back then, you could do that. You, you couldn't do it now no. because you, you'd have to pay for all the samples and get them cleared. And so it's a real brick wall on creativity in certain respects. I get that you can't just have people copying another person's song, and uh, things like the the uh, you know. Bittersweet Symphony, sort of using the Stones, uh, Sympathy for the Devil, I think. They, they, they sampled a kind of, like, very obviously sampled a sort of orchestral piece. But again, I know the Stones took a huge... I think they may have taken 100% of the publishing on that song because of the copyright infringement. Right. You know, and that, to me, is like... They don't actually need to make any money out of that song. They could, like, <laughs> let him have his, have his hit, do you know what I mean? So, but I guess, you know, when it comes to money and music... I know I sent you a list of things to meditate on. Well, you could argue that... music, you know, is like... It's a different I mean, then, but then you could argue that from a, as someone who's a diehard American soul fan that bands like the Stones, yep. you know, made their, you know, bass there. <laughs> There's so much of what they're about sure. on, on black music. In fact, the woman who sang 
yeah. uh, who sang on that so famously was uh, Mary Clayton, Mary Clayton who yeah. basically yeah. didn't you know I've yeah. got a couple of her albums but she never really she had to subsume her solo career to, to, to make a living mm. singing as so many mm. so many uh, black American singers yeah. tend to, to do well that's my pet my pet yeah. thing anyway so yeah. I won't go there how long oh. do we have Wendy? is it till half past or later? Um, flexible we're, we're okay yeah. Yeah. okay yeah. Uh, Wister? sorry I don't know my name Richard Ashcroft probably is just and gave it back to you oh you did oh that's question yeah I think I have with some of the jazz for want of a better word for it, let's call it jazz stuff I do you know with the quartet that's very much about playing live in the room all together and um, and then doing a bit of editing where where necessary you know so those records have that the 80s Wang Chung records were all done you know layer by layer by layer and I suppose in a sense primitive I recorded it all myself so that is necessarily I'm playing you know, the different layers but I had a way of working where I would, uh, how can I put it? I would really try and be spontaneous about the way I played things. And I would, you know, when you're recording, there's this strange balance between you want to get it in time and in tune and, and nuanced in a way that makes it repeated listening pleasurable, you know. So if it's full of like little irritating things that aren't quite right, then. And it, that drives me mad, sort of thing. But uh, but that's the opposite of what you're talking about, you know, because really those things should be subsumed underneath the spontaneity of the moment. But I think with Primitive, a lot of the playing on it is sort of uh, single take stuff, and uh, the vocals I'm very meticulous about, so I tend to do lots of different vocal takes and stuff, you know. But uh, elements of spontaneity I do here on tracks like Whitstable Beach and stuff, you know, and I, I know it's very much. I didn't plan it out too much, that record. I, I sort of just recorded and, and sort of worked out what I was going to be doing as each sort of next, each, each layer appeared and each turn appeared in the playing, you know. And there's a track on there called um, You Are The One I Love. And um, again, it goes into this very kind of abstract thing, but which wasn't planned at all, but it was to do with kind of... Um, just letting myself play sort of spontaneously and later on kind of organising it into a, into a, in, into a thing. Do you know what I mean? So um, I like to think that I'm still... You know, when I went to the Royal College, I was sort of shocked by how clinical people were in their approach to music and how sort of locked into a certain sort of classical music they were. They had no time for pop music at all, you know. And um, I, li I like to think that I still have that. You know, I went. I went with Tony. I got some tickets for Tony and me to go and see uh, a Strauss concert recently, you know. and it just blew my mind. This concert, you know, like really emotional reaction to it, as it did Tony as well. Actually, you know, it's like so. I like to think that I don't sit there thinking like, all right, that's the horn part there, and that's that, and that comes in. You know, some people are very analytical about it, I think, you know, but I still get a real thrill out of music, you know, and that's probably why I still do it. You know, it's, it comes from the heart. To the heart, as Beethoven said. Yep. <laughs> can, I, can I say, you, know, you say you've got a thrill for music still, mm. which is great, mm. and that, that seems 
counteractive from saying that you don't like to perform live. Mm-hmm. That, that seems I mean, I enjoy playing live much more now than, you know, in the 80s it was a bit of a strain. But I think uh, in the last sort of 10, 15, well, longer, it's probably the last 20 years, <laughs> which is a long time, isn't it? Really? I've much more enjoyed playing live. And with the jazz thing, the live, the pressures of the live moment, I'm playing in a genre of music that I find really challenging, actually. You know, it's, it's out of my comfort zone most of the time. You know, uh, that, that leads me to, to do things that I wouldn't normally do and I, and I see the real value in that as a musician you know to be challenged you know and the great thing about music is you never get to a point where you sort of think yeah I'm, I'm pretty good at this now I, I know <laughs> what I'm doing you know you never get to that point it's always like oh god I, just, you know, I could be better you know, I haven't done is that because you're a perfectionist or? not really I think it's just because it's such a vast subject and, it, and it's a tough mistress <laughs> as they say I mean it doesn't really kind of ever let you off the hook you know so I heard an interview with uh, Nick Lowe uh-huh. um, a few months back who I've just kind of rediscovered. I didn't realise that he was around and I never really paid him that much attention. But he was saying that when uh, when he's faded from the limelight, he, he, he thought to himself, well, I was just sort of getting good at this. <laughs> yes. uh, so I don't really want to give up now. Yeah. Uh, so he just carried on and, you know, mm. managed to carve, uh, carve a, a musical career out for himself, and, mm. you know. His songwriting improves, and it yeah. it does strike me today. I mean, you talk, we talk about Spotify mm-hmm. and you know criticisms mm-hmm. of the pop music, but there does seem to be much more scope, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and pop music we would always associate with being a young person's mm-hmm. game, but it's it's such a lot. It's, people are carving out new areas for themselves, yeah. you know. I Maybe that, we should be. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I mean that's, that's a really good point. And the, in a you know Paul McCartney headlining Glastonbury and all this thing, these are old guys, you know. And yeah. uh, it's like, and I get that it's, you know, I think when I was a kid, I sort of thought pop music was the way the world is was, you know, and that there would always be bands and always be a, a record industry and there'd always be you know, each generation would come up and have its own bands and its own way. Of, and I sort of get that, no, that's it was actually a sort of golden age that that I had lived through, particularly my generation in a sense sort of growing up with the Beatles when I was very young and then coming of age during the 80s when technology hit its stride in a, in a certain way and then going through the 90s and the noughties when again that you know the technology was sort of dictating things but I wasn't wrapped up in the music business in that kind of way where I had to sort of follow the line you know and, uh, mm. but I, I do get that it's a I think you know when the histories are written, you know, in, in the future, uh, pop music will be seen to be something incredibly, you know, a unique thing that happened and of incredible value artistically, I think. Because I get right now, you know, there's this sort of, still this underwriting or understated sense that there's classical music, which is like real music, and there's jazz, which is for people who are really good musicians, even though nobody likes what they do. And then there's pop music, which is just like mucking around and trash, and you grow out of that. And I think, you know, that, that's not how it is. And I think... Huh? I sort of get that there's a sort of, um, a sort of BBC reality that's a bit like that, if you like. You know? uh, so there's a sort of cultural reality in this country that's, that's a bit like that. Maybe I've got a bit of a chip on my shoulder about it personally, <laughs> yeah. do you know what I mean? But I, I do think, uh, you know, I'm, I always sort of say I hate dividing music up into genres. And I like to think of music as 
music, you know. One of my favourite stories, I'll tell it anyway. It starts off this uh, book by a guy called Alex Ross, who's the music critic for Vanity Fair. And uh, he wrote a book called The Rest is Noise, noise, about uh, 20th century music here. So he tells the story at the beginning of the book about George Gershwin uh, kind of having massive success as a songwriter and stuff and sort of wanting to write, he wrote his piano concerto, I think, and feeling that he was kind of like, it was good, but not good enough sort of thing. So he came to Europe to take lessons from some of the European composers and he had lessons with Maurice Ravel for a while. Uh, I, th- I think actually Ravel said, I don't want to teach you because you make far too much more money out of music than <laughs> I ever did, you know, so I, I should be listening to you, you know. Anyway, so he met with various people and then he went to Vienna to meet with Alban Berg, who's this composer that I really got into when I was at university. And Berg um, <clears throat> had written a piece uh, called The Lyric Suite, which is a very, very beautiful piece for string quartet in six sections. And Berg arranged for a performance of the lyric suite at his house and, and invited Gershwin to come along and hear it. So I really got the sense of, because um, I've been not to Berg's house, but when I, when we recorded Everybody Have Fun Tonight, that, that album, um, one of the stipulations I made, because I didn't want to work with the producer that <laughs> everybody wanted to work with, but he was Viennese, or he'd been born in Vienna. So I said, okay, well, if we can record in Vienna, for six to eight weeks, I'll, I'll work with him. So that was my sort of payoff. So and I had a six to eight weeks in Vienna, which for me was heaven because it meant I could go to see the Philharmonic and the opera and stuff, and, and did all this stuff. And I met this guy called Andre Heller, who was in the day uh, a sort of Bob Dylan of Austria, a really successful kind of folk pop singer. But when I met him, he had a career designing firework displays, uh, and he designed the Australian bicentenary display and also the display that um, in uh, West Berlin that was seen in East Berlin just before the wall came down. It was one of the major things that brought all that together. So he's a super happening guy, you know. And he lived in this house uh, that had been uh, designed by Adolf Loos in, in the same street as where the Berg's house was, you know. So I sort of had this sort of strong connection to that. And being in his house, I could sort of imagine uh, how Gershwin would feel coming into this Viennese kind of villa, you know, with a big heavy velvet curtains and the sprinkles on up and Berg being there and sitting down and listening to this like mind-blowing bit of kind of proper Viennese classical music, maybe some of the last music that was ever written in that vein, you know, and how he would have been into that. And at the end of it, you know, he's, he's like, amazing, you know, and, and Berg said to him, Mr. Gershwin, you must play us some of your music. And he was like, you've got to be joking. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't play you. I've got rhythm or something. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's like, I can't do that. And Berg said to him, but Mr. Gershwin, music is music. You know, and I thought, that's exactly it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, Gershwin is amazing. Do you know what I mean? Sure, it's not, you know, music that comes out of the you know, bloodstream of Mozart and Beethoven and stuff like Berg's does. But it's still incredible. You know? Yeah. And I, I get that, you know, with... Uh, with the Beatles, you know, Wang Chung is in the Beatles, but it's kind of like we were in that stream of music, you know. And I think the Beatles' music in time, you know, my current favourite listen is an album by Brad Meldow, who's an American jazz pianist, and he's done an album of sort of covers of the Beatles' songs, but it's more than covers, he sort of actually digs right into them and takes a sort of jazz player's sense of how you can expand the kind of universe of each of these songs into something huge, you know. And uh, 
and I, I sort of think, yeah, that that's this, and when you listen to it and you li- you hear the Beatles melodies over this kind of really pretty complicated times, but those melodies stand out like crystalline sort of shapes, and they're absolutely beautiful. You know? And I get you know that you know the Beatles music I think is just the most important music that was written in the 20th century. I think really, you know? and I think that will come to be a, a sort of standard, or I hope it will come to be a standard attitude. You know, and the, and the sort of underwriting of all kinds of music that. It's okay, but because it's underwritten by you know, strong cultural forces, it's given, I think, rather too much prominence. You know. But the, we'll get a, a sort of better balance and things. You know. But anyway, I think that, that you know, when people are looking back, you know, probably sometime in the future, you know, this pop music, this era of bands and pop music and the, and the aesthetics that it represents and the, and the insight that will give people into the, into the times that we lived in will be, will be amazing. You know. I think that's a good... Point to yes, to end it on, isn't it? Really? Yes. Can we give our. Uh...